0: Kids, I hope you have a wonderful time in the back. If you're with us remaining, I would encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. I don't know if you've been uh, sort of paying attention to the culture around us, but um, one of the most popular songs in the US and Europe right now is actually a song that was written in 1985. Uh, it's a song called uh, Running Up That Hill by an artist named Kate Bush, and she wrote it in 1985. And it was pretty popular when it was originally written so many years ago, but it's now soared to the, the top 10 list in both the US and in Europe. And all that's because. It was a song that was played at a very climactic scene in Netflix's show Stranger Things. Uh, And so it was this really powerful scene in the show, and of course, everybody seems to be watching that show. And so now this song has become wildly popular, and even, even Kate Bush has sort of come out of relative obscurity in order to thank all of her new fans, which most of which were not born when the song was originally written. Uh, but if you pay attention to the lyrics of the song, it's really interesting. The song is actually called Running Up That Hill, A Deal with, gl- with God. That's the full title of the song. And it's written clearly by somebody who's in distress or somebody who's troubled with the circumstances of their lives, and they feel really helpless. And so one of the lyrics says this. It says, and if I only could, I'd make a deal with God and I'd get him to swap our places. I'd get him to swap our places. Now, I think we've all understood the sentiment of that song. We've all been there before. We've all dealt with sort of troubles and distress, and we've asked God to do something about it, and God just doesn't respond in the way we really want him to. And so we wish we could just trade places for a few moments, to change our circumstances or whatever it is. We just wish we could trade places for a little while. We would like to be God, if only for just a quick moment. But of course, what we know is that we can. We never be God. And so our passage this morning is really all about that. It shows humanity's attempt to switch places with God, to not be the creature, but instead want to be the Creator. So, I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapter 11, and I'm going to be reading verses uh, 1 through 9. This is God's word. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. over the face of all the earth. This is God's word. Father, be with us as we look at this passage this morning. Help us to not see the significance of this event that happened so long ago, but also the significance of of what it means for our hearts and our lives and our faith as well. Only your spirit can do that, can take these ancient texts and make them applicable to our lives and even life-giving. So we pray that your spirit would come. Use your word To bring life to each one of us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I was uh, uh, driving home uh, with my son the other day after I picked him up from work, and we were talking about the Kate Bush song and and how that was popular in 1985. And he made the, the good observation that now, in our culture today, the most popular song out there was written in 1985. And the most popular movie is Top Gun, which was originally made in 1986. And we were talking about how history just seems to repeat itself. And of course, you know, if you studied history at all, history does tend to repeat itself. We've been looking at these first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis. It's what some people called primeval history or uh, proto-history. And uh, we've used these chapters to answer some of the most profound questions uh, that life presents to us. But what we've also seen in these 11 chapters is that history tragically repeats itself over and over and over again. We even see it in these first 11 chapters. In Genesis 3, we saw how Adam and Eve rejected the truth of God and they believed a lie instead. That lie was so appealing to them because they wanted to be like God and they somehow believed that if they were like God, then things would be better, that they could make life work better on their own. But of course, they were wrong and at the end of our, that narrative, they were exiled from the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Cain is angry with his brother Abel. Really, he's angry with God, not necessarily his brother Abel. God warns him, but instead of heeding God's warning, he took matters into his own hands, he killed his brother, and as a result, he is exiled. He is moved further east of Eden. Uh, the past two weeks, we've looked at Genesis chapter 6, where things had gotten so bad for humanity that the Scriptures tell us that every inclination of the heart of man was towards evil. And so God sent a flood to wipe out humanity, and only Adam or only Noah and his family were saved. Now we come to Genesis chapter 11, and humanity has developed once again. So there's probably a lot of time in between the Noah narrative and this one. Humanity has developed again. And it gives us a couple of details about humanity. Don't miss the significance, particularly of verse 2, where it says this, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So humanity has moved even further east of Eden, which is the scripture's way of saying that they've moved even further and further away from God. The story itself is pretty familiar to us and it Tells us very quickly all the details of it. Humanity was still united in one language and one culture, so they de- decide to build a city and they build a tower, and they want that tower to reach up into the heavens. The passage tells us that the Lord sees this construction project and he decides to confuse the language to disperse them throughout all the earth. And so at the end of our story, the building project ceases, the people are scattered, the building project just sits there unfinished, and it was called Babel from that point on. Now the passage leaves us with some questions. Why would God decide to do this? Or or what is God really saying here? Is God against architecture? Does somehow he not like people building buildings that are really high and reach up into the sky? Some have said this is a commentary on cities that God doesn't like cities, and so you should never live in a city because look at what God does to this city. You know, some people have said that before. Uh, Some have wondered: Is this God sounding threatened? By humanity and humanity's abilities, is he just as vain and ill-tempered and insecure as the misbehaving Greek gods that we've all learned about in school? Well, God really isn't any of those things, so really what is the issue behind this building project and this story? Why did God come and confuse these languages? Well, the issue, of course, started with Adam and Eve. It runs through the heart of Cain, and it is the issue that plagued humanity in Noah's day. It's this common thread that we see as history repeats itself. And really, it's two things, which I think are really just two sides of the same coin, two issues, pride and control, pride and control. This is the thread of sin That began with Adam and Eve that runs through humanity even today, and it is the thread of sin that exists in your heart and exists in mine as well. So let's look at the pride that we see here. The key phrase, I think, is in verse 4, where it says, "'Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth.'" Now, one thing to say about this is I don't, I don't believe, and I don't think the Scriptures teach, that it is necessarily wrong to want to make a name for ourselves. I think all of us, at the end of the day, we all want to be well-liked. We all want to be respected and well-respected by other people. All of us, no matter how much we say we don't, care about our reputation to some degree, And I don't think it's wrong to care about those things. I don't think it's wrong to build a successful or even profitable name for ourselves. And so what is going on here? Well, I think the the phrase before it gives us the key as to what is truly going on. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. What is the Scripture telling us? Well, it's telling us that humanity, at least at this moment, wants to take the place of God once again. It reminds us that all of us in our sin want to be little gods. We not only want to make a name for ourselves, we want to make a name for ourselves in a way that replaces God in our lives. We're not content to be the creature or the creation We want to be just like God. Doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't that the exact same thing that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, um, wrote a whole chapter on pride. He called it the great sin. And he says that's the sin that is behind every other sin. He said that, that pride is the essential vice. It's the utmost evil. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And pride, as we all know, can take all sorts of forms and functions. It can look like vanity, where all we do is think about ourselves day in and day out. It can look like conceit, where we have a sort of exaggerated sense of our own personal greatness. Uh, can look like arrogance, feelings of superiority, always looking for ways to put ourselves ahead or establish ourselves above other people. Pride can even look like control. We're going to talk more about that in, the middle bit, in a little bit, but pride can look like control, always needing to massage and manipulate our circumstances to our own ends. And if pride is all these things and all these different forms— it means it is at the heart of every one of our sins. In effect, every time we sin, we close our fist and we shake it at God and say, forget you, God, I'm going to do it my way. I know what's best. I can run things better than you can. So let's swap places for a little while, and I will show you what I can do. You see, pride refuses to accept that we are just the creation and that he is the creator. Instead, it longs to reverse those roles. So in pride, Adam and Eve, they wanted to be like God. In pride, Cain took matters of justice into his own hands. In pride, humanity forgot about God, embracing only evil. And in pride here, humanity desires to build a tower to the heavens. They don't want to have to trust in God for their protection, or for their care. Instead, they want to be God. They want to be in control and to ensure their own protection. They don't want to have to rely on anyone. Friends, that pride is in our hearts as well. Lewis famously said that it's in every heart, and the more you have it, the more you hate it in other people. So anytime we take matters into our own hands, we've succumbed to pride. Anytime we think we know best, we've succumbed to pride. Anytime we think our picture of flourishing or our picture of the good life is better than God's picture of flourishing or the good life, we have succumbed to this type of pride. But as we said before, pride is only one side of this coin. The other side of it is control. It's control, wanting to control everything. Now, most believe that this tower was actually not a tower as we think about it. Um, Most people believe that this tower was um, one of the first, if not the first, ziggurats. Have you ever seen in history classes what a ziggurat is? Kind of looks like a, a pyramid. We know what pyramids look like, but have you ever seen those pyramids that have sort of levels to them that go up like this? Well, most people believe that this was uh, uh, the first ziggurat, and ziggurats throughout history uh, became places of worship for all sorts of pagan religions, and you actually see it in multiple different cultures and multiple different pagan religions. And what people would do is they would climb these ziggurats to get close to God, and sometimes when they got to the top, they would perform all sorts of sacrifices on the top, even some cases of human sacrifices on the top, and there would be all sorts of rituals associated with it. But the heart of all these pagan religions is the attempt to manipulate and control God. That was the goal. We offer these sacrifices in order to get on God's good side and order to avoid his anger. And if we've done a good job, good things will happen. That means we've pleased the gods, and if bad things happen, well, we've got to do something different because somehow we have angered the gods. And so that's how pagan religion developed with all of its practices. They all developed in this way. And so some people think that this might have been the first ziggurat, meaning this would have been the very first pagan religion being developed in this moment. Now, that might seem just like an interesting historical tidbit, But there's actually a deeper reality to this. See, pagan religion has always been an attempt to manipulate and control God for our own purposes. So what do we do? We create a religion. We create our own religion where we get to set the terms. And in so doing, we create a means through which we get to control God. We get to bend him according to our own will. Now, paganism, at least in its formal term, might not seem as prevalent as it, is, as it was in ancient societies, might not seem as prevalent today as it was back then, but our attempts to control and manipulate God are just as prevalent today as they've been all throughout human history. I talk to a lot of people about faith, and today the most prominent thing I hear from people when I talk to them about faith is, is this. They, they, they say, I consider myself to be a, a, a spiritual person, but I'm not necessarily a religious person. And when I ask them, okay, well, what, uh, that's fair. What, is, well, what do you mean by that? Well, well, usually they say something along the lines of, well, I get to pick and choose what works for me rather than just sort of fall into some arbitrary religious category that's imposed from the outside upon me. Some have called this cafeteria religion, and you've all been in a cafeteria before. You remember walking through the tray with the cafeteria. You enter the cafeteria line of religion, and maybe you take a little bit of Hinduism over here, a little bit of Christianity over here. Maybe you add a dash of self-help and wellness or popular psychology And you leave behind the things that are offensive to your own modern sensibilities or the things that might just not work for you and for your life. Now, even as Christians, we do this from time to time. Uh, we like certain parts of the Bible, but uh, we obscure don't really talk about certain parts. We pass by other things. And in so doing, what we do is we dilute God. We, we water down the truth of the Scriptures. Now, what is all this? All these things, from formal pagan religion to spiritual but not religious, religious to cafeteria religion, all these things are simple attempts to make God into our own image, We know what's best, and so we're going to fashion and worship a God who only ever agrees with us. We might celebrate all the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus, which we absolutely should do, But we ignore the hard things sometimes that Jesus has to say to us as well. Let's not talk about sin. Let's not talk about judgment and sacrifice. And let's instead just talk about how Jesus makes our lives better according to our definition of what that means. All these are simple attempts to manipulate and control God rather than truly submit to him. Pride and control. Two sides of the same coin, the sin we see in Adam and Eve, the thread that carries through Cain and Abel, through Noah, into our own hearts as well. But perhaps what is the best lesson here is just how fruitless all of it is at the end of the day. Just think about the end of this narrative, the end of this story. Think about a half-built tower just standing there left empty. Left empty, no one's living and nothing's happening there. And it's a great monument to the fact that our prideful attempts to be God, our attempts to manipulate and control God, they are all fruitless. And at the end of the day, they only lead to futility and to heartbreak and confusion. We can't be God, nor can we reach God, and our futile attempts to do so will only ever leave us dissatisfied. Our attempts at making life work apart from God and His Word are fruitless at the end of the day. And friends, that's why I believe that God shows up and disperses them, confusing their language. He doesn't do this as a rival who's trying to, who feels threatened by what humanity is doing, but instead he comes as a father who wants to show his children just how fruitless their lives are apart from him. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. We can't reach God. We can't be God. That's really good news. Uh, We can't reach God, and so therefore God did something. Instead, God came down. God came down. See, mankind's attempts to reach God, they will never be successful. Our sinful pride will always get in the way. We'll never be able to save ourselves. And so God, knowing that, decided to come down instead. In humility, Philippians chapter 2, in humility, Jesus became one of us. He came down. He became God in the flesh. He lived amongst us. He was patient with us. He was kind. He cared for us as a father cares for children. He healed the sick. He brought sight to the blind. And at the end, he was arrested and carried outside of the city. He was crucified as a common criminal. And then three days later, he rose from the grave so that you and I, Could be saved. He did it so that we actually can reach the heavens, not through some tower made by human hands. He did it all so that we can reach the heavens, not by our effort, not by our righteousness, not by our ingenuity or our intellect, but through his amazing grace and his amazing grace alone. So friends, don't give in to pride and control. Instead, in humility, recognize the truth of who you are. In humility, recognize the Savior who came down and cling to him in faith. Only in clinging to him in faith will you and I ever truly reach the heavens. And at the end of the day, friends, Jesus came not just to give us answers to ultimate questions, even how valuable that is, and we've been looking at that for a bunch of weeks. He didn't just come to give us answers to ultimate questions. At the end of the day, he came to give us himself. And that is good news. Let's pray.